Good evening. All right. Shall we talk about the Bible? I, I just to just let you in on a secret, right? I respond really favorably to some sign that the people I'm talking to are alive. Like, yeah, that would be great. Like, I don't know, just 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 some some nods, some shaking of heads or nodding of heads. That would be really helpful if you agree or disagree with my my uh, uh, statements as we go on. Well, t- tonight we are uh, in the penultimate talk on the subject of Genesis. Uh, Jim's going to finish uh, our series next week. And uh, up until now, we've been in chapters 1 to 11, which we tend to call the primeval history, uh, where in those chapters, we tend to see God acting and interacting directly with the affairs of people and events. And we now move into a period of the Bible where the narrative uh, tends to focus more on the earthly characters, and God sort of recedes he moves himself into the background, but he's still um, he's still active. He's still interested. It's still his plan at work. He's still working. Uh, but his mode of operation tends to look more like a king who has sent out ambassadors. You know, like somebody who has sent his um, messengers to do his bidding. Uh, sometimes these ambassadors act well. Other times, not so much. Uh, So as we move beyond the primeval history, we have to remember what we've learned there, which is that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. We've seen he can do that because he has done that. Uh, But we've also seen what God will not do, and that's, uh, you know, he will bring about his intentions, but he's not going to force the hands of those he has created. He instead invites people into what he's doing to bring about the things he intends. So this week and next week, uh, we're going to be looking at this part of Genesis, which concerns God's plan to reverse this distance, this chasm, this split, and the damage that we've created between ourselves and God. And it starts with God's promises to Abraham. And just so you don't get confused uh, this evening, uh, in this section, we're talking about he's called Abraham or Abram, and uh, later his name changes to Abraham, but I might you know, forget that and just use the wrong name. Lucy is going to come and uh, read the passage of scripture uh, for us. Uh, there is a little section in the middle which we, uh, which, uh, yeah, come on, <laughs> sorry. There is a little section in the middle which we're going to skip uh, just now, but don't worry, I am going to come back to it. Uh, this is Genesis 11, starting at verse 27. So this is um, chapter 11, um, starting at verse 27 to chapter 12, verse 10, and then skipping on to chapter 13, um, verse 1 to 4. Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran was a father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land in his birth, in Ur of Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife um, was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, 
his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days um, of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So we built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich, and in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He journeyed on by stages from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. That's great. Thank you, Lucy. So uh, we skipped the bit where stuff happens in Egypt, but we're going to come back to that. So he's come a long way, Abraham. He's, uh, he's come all the way from... Uh, somewhere in southern Iraq, uh, probably up through Syria, um, and, uh, and then back down towards Egypt via uh, the land that is known then as Canaan. And then he builds, an, well, he builds an altar there, then he goes down to Egypt and then comes back up to the altar. So that's, and that's where we, uh, where we found Abraham at the end of that reading. Just uh, find my place here. So they're clearly a, a, a nomadic people. They set up tents and then they pull up stakes and they move on. And we're not always told the reasons, although in one case we are told that there was a great famine which drove them into Egypt. And that is a well-attested uh, thing that happened. The Egyptians uh, were well used to people coming down to their land in times of drought and famine because the Nile Valley had really good fertility, relatively speaking. 
but there is also here a pre-echo of what's going to happen later in the biblical story where God's people once again, because of famine, go down into Egypt. They have a row with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is going to have to experience a bunch of plagues before expelling God's people from Egypt again. But that's another story for another time. In this story, God communicates directly with Abraham just after the death of his father, telling him it's time to move on again. And with the command to go, God adds this extraordinary and entirely unmerited promise. At this point, we really know nothing about Abram's character. Unlike Noah, we're told who, you know, Noah was a righteous man. Abram, we know nothing about him. And there's no hint of anything particularly good in him that would warrant God's favor at this time. Nevertheless, the promise comes. And I want to focus on uh, three verses at the beginning of uh, chapter 12 for a moment, because this promise is of really vital significance for how we read not just this passage, but the entire Bible. So uh, if we could have chapter 12, verse 1 back on the screen, that's great. So the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. That's the bit that Abram has to do. And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So let's break this down into two categories. There's the category of what the blessing is, and then there's the category of why. God describes exactly what he's going to do, but he also explains why he's doing it. So the what of the promise is this. He's going to show Abraham a great land that will become his. He's going to make him a great nation and make his name great, his reputation He's going to bless Abraham, and through Abraham, he's going to bless those that bless him. And there's also a bit about curses there. Those who curse you, I will curse. Basically, God is sending Abraham out to start a family who are going to be God's own agents and ambassadors in the world. That's the what, but why? God's purpose in doing so is explicit here too. It is so that Abraham and his, the generations that come after him, they will be a blessing. And that in them, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So even, there, even though there's that note there on curses, God isn't looking to curse. That's not his intention. His entire intention behind this promise is blessing, not cursing. But we need to look at this idea of cursing just for a moment. Um, Chris talked about cursing a few weeks ago, uh, and I highly recommend uh, that talk. But just for now, I'll say that these references to curses are wrapped up in the way that God intends Abraham's family to be ambassadors in the world. See, an ambassador in the world would essentially represent the actual person who had sent them. So if you injure or insult an ambassador of God, you implicitly insult and intent injury towards God himself and that is not going to go well for you so God is simply saying if somebody curses you they are by proxy also cursing me and that's not okay but the plan behind the promise is not to curse but to bless 
I don't yet read Hebrew, but I've learned from reliable sources that I've read that uh, this verb here for blessing might be what's called reflexive. So it might not mean exactly, I will bless all the families. It might mean, because of you, they will bless themselves. But whichever way it goes, it doesn't actually matter. The point is this, that God intends an absolute bless fest. He's going to bless Abraham. Abraham's going to bless you. You're going to bless Abraham. Then God's going to bless you for blessing Abraham. And then you'll bless God and God will bless you. And so on and so on and so on. Blessing is the order of the day. And then we get to the New Testament. And we see how this promise still stands. And how Jesus begins to really realize the potential of this promise. I've been thinking a lot recently about Jesus as he meets the woman in Samaria at the well in John uh, chapter 4, where Jesus extends the offer of this blessing beyond the boundaries of a particular people group, beyond the boundaries of a particular geographical area. The Bible calls them Gentiles. We, by and large, call them us. And in Galatians, uh, Paul writes this. Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so, you see, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. And for this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. So as far as the New Testament is concerned, it's the Jesus people, it's the church, it's us, who now carry the promise that God made to Abraham some 4,000-ish years ago. But it's quite possible uh, that uh, you're aware of some ways in which the church, that is capital C Church, has not been a blessing to all of the families on the earth. So because of that, I want to say a few things about this little episode of Abraham in Egypt and what impact that might have on how we view God's intended purposes behind his promises, starting with Abraham, but eventually, apparently, moving in and through us. So we'll jump back to the Egypt episode, which I'll read now. So when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Good start, Abraham. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. For reasons that are not spoken. Say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared on your account. And when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. She's just the woman now, by the way. She doesn't have a name anymore. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this that you have done to me? 
why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on his way with his wife and all that he had. So there's a couple of things I want to point out in this section, but my overarching point here is that Abraham shows himself to be a right piece of work. He hatches this plan to conceal his marriage and so protect his own skin. And there are so many questions I have about this episode, um, such as why was Abraham afraid that they would kill him? And uh, is that what it was like for foreigners, such that they had to concoct these, these stories? And what the heck were Abraham and Sarai doing hobnobbing around the people of Pharaoh, such that they were... Um, uh, you know, in, in, in the presence of his officials. All of these questions, alas, are not immediately obvious in the text, not to me anyway, and I don't know their answer, but there are still some things I want us to observe. First of all, it turns out later in Genesis that Sarai is actually Abraham's sister. So technically, he wasn't lying his half-sister, to be precise. He wasn't so much lying as being economical with the truth. But there's two things we need to note before we let Abraham off the hook. First is that this kind of marriage between such close relatives is later on in the Bible explicitly banned when God gives Moses the law. So although Abraham doesn't yet know the law, we don't have license ourselves to put on these rose-tinted glasses and say that just because Abraham did it, that makes it okay. Secondly, it's clear that although he's not exactly lying by declaring that Sarai is his sister, his intention is obviously deception. He intends to conceal and to mislead. And he's doing it out of fear of harm to himself and not out of any consideration of what this means for his wife. And this plan of action clearly results in his wife having to go to bed with Pharaoh. And she clearly has no say in the matter. As a cautionary tale to be always critical of what you read, I was horrified when I read a highly regarded commentary on Genesis which said this, no comments of hers are recorded implying her consent to his scheme. Do not be sure of that by any means. And neither is God impressed by this state of things. And so God enters the story directly once again. And although it's Pharaoh who gets it. It's Abraham who is culpable. So my whole point here is to illustrate that the background of God choosing Abraham and making him this profound promise does not and cannot lead to us making Abraham some kind of all-round hero and good guy. He clearly isn't. And when the New Testament authors speak of him in terms of his exalted status and the characteristics of him that we are to emulate, they speak of one thing and one thing alone, and that is that Abraham believed God. 
And in this passage, what that means is that God told him to go, and he went. That's pretty much the sum total of Abraham's virtue in this passage. And that's where I believe the lesson and consequently the blessing is for us. That Abraham, like any other person on the earth, has serious character flaws. He's not perfect by a long shot. But rather than disqualifying Abraham on the basis of his character flaws, instead God uses him to carry out his divine purpose. And all he requires from Abraham is his yes. And it's Abraham's yes that commends him to us. We who now carry in us the promise of God need to be a bless fest for the entire world. And the way we start is by giving God our yes. We too, I'm sorry to have to tell you, if you are not yet aware, we too have character flaws. We have patchy histories and we have uncertain futures. We have screwed up. I have screwed up. And we will screw up. But none of that disqualifies us. None of that disqualifies us from giving God our yes and entering into the blessed fest that God promises us and the world through us. So that's really all I have to say this evening. But at the same time, I don't think that's all God has to say. I believe that this evening he wants to minister to each and every one of us that we might once again just surrender our will to his. And where we may have disqualified ourselves from his plans, recognize that we have done to and in ourselves what God has not done and will not do. He didn't make a mistake with Abraham and he's not made a mistake with any of you lot. He didn't choose Abraham for any goodness that Abraham had and he's not chosen you for any goodness that you have. Our imperfections do not excuse us or give us a license to go on sinning, but neither do they disqualify us or prevent us in any way from entering into God's promise. So if you have disqualified yourself, you've done that which God has neither done to you nor would have you do to yourself. So why don't we stand and I'll pray. And I'm going to invite you to come straight away uh, to this front area where um, we are going to minister to you. And all that means is that somebody who is uh, in this church 
a member of a home group and thus uh, somebody that we are in a relationship with is going to come alongside you and pray for you. And this might be a response that you have to anything I've said or anything the Lord has already been saying to you through the worship, through the earlier in the day, whatever it is. Use this opportunity to respond to what God is saying and doing. So let's pray. Father, we give you our thanks and our praise that you are in control. And we are so amazed that you would use the likes of us to bring about your plans. I pray uh, for anyone standing in this hall this evening. who so lacks a sense of the worth that you place on them. That they've disqualified themselves from this mission that you have placed before us. I pray that you would teach us, not just with head knowledge, but with a, a deep assurance in our spirits that we are not a mistake. We're not a glitch in the matrix. We are part of your plan. And so I proclaim over everyone here the promise of God that if you will simply give him your yes, that he will bless you and that he will bless others through you. That is how God intends to bring the world back from the brink. That's how he did it 4,000 years ago with Abraham, and that's how he intends to do it today with you. And you may have been told that it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. I tell you that it matters. All the things you have said and done matter. The point is this, that God who sees all and knows all, still chooses you.